All right. Everyone, it's good to see you this morning. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake Box. I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, and so great to have you this morning, get a chance to gather and worship God. If, you, if this is your first time here, just let me say we love that you're here. Uh, Midtown, we, we, we aim to be a place that uh, can help you connect with God, even if you're just exploring the faith. And so we, uh, we're just so glad that you're here this morning. I hope you find our time together helpful for you. Uh, as we continue a series that we've been in this summer that we've been calling the Psalms of Summer, we're trying to just taking one uh, psalm each Sunday and kind of drilling down on that. So one psalm out of the 150 psalms and working through seven different psalms over the course of the summer. And uh, today we're going to be in Psalm 139, Psalm 139. And Psalm 139 is a psalm that describes what uh, theologians call God's incommunicable attributes. An incommunicable attribute is an attribute of God that is only true about God, right? So God has communicable attributes. These are things that uh, can be true of us and and really should be true of us. Things like uh, God is loving, so we should be loving. God's merciful, we should be merciful. God's gracious, and God's just, all these things. But then God also has these incommunicable attributes. Things like uh, Justin talked about last Sunday, that God is infinite and that God is transcendent. He's outside of time. Like we can't, no matter how hard we try, ever be that, right? Uh, or in this psalm, uh, Uh, This psalm will lay out uh, three of the most famous of God's incommunicable attributes. That God is omniscient, meaning that he's all-knowing, that he's omnipresent, that means he's everywhere. And that God is omnipotent, meaning that he's all-powerful. And my hope is, is that as we study this psalm together, that our understanding of the grandness, of the greatness of God would be enhanced, that we'd be moved to worship him, and that we would also see the comfort and joy that's found in God as a result of who he is, all right? So let me read this psalm. If you want to turn there in your Bible, go there on your phones, whatever. Uh, Psalm 139 is where we'll be. I'm going to read all the way through. Uh, Also, we'll have the slides, the words up here on the slides. You can follow along that way. But let me read this all the way through, and then we'll begin to unpack it. So Psalm 139, verse 1 says this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I set on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. 
Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search, my, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Okay, and let's pray and we can unpack this. Heavenly Father, God, we just ask that you would open our eyes, enable us to see more clearly through your word just how incredible you are, or how great you are, how majestic you are, or that we would be uh, refreshed, or we would be helped, or that we would re- recognize the comfort and the joy that is found in you. Lord, pray that you be honored in our time together this morning. Speak powerfully to us through your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so I love this psalm for lots of reasons. There's so much good stuff in here, but uh, I'm just going ahead and, and call it out. Hey, the end of this psalm is weird, right? Like you're just like, oh, this is beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And then what? Like what happened at the end? It kind of takes a turn. We're going to get there, all right? But b- before we get there, I want to spend some time looking at the first three-fourths of this psalm that really uh, lay out for us this different aspects of God's presence, what we have in this psalm is, is David's meditation on, the, on these different, three different aspects of God's presence. And he shows us kind of how his heart responds to who God is as the psalm goes along. So that's what we're going to unpack. In fact, if you want to take notes, if you're into that, kind of here are the three major movements we'll have this morning. The first is that God's presence is an inescapable reality. God's presence is an inescapable reality. The second is that God's presence is a disconcerting reality. And then third is that God's presence is a joyful reality. So that's, that's where we're going this morning. We'll begin here with God's presence as an inescapable reality. What I want to help you see is that this psalm is just beautifully organized. It's got four different stanzas of six verses each. If you were uh, reading on the slides, it would be hard for you to see that. But if you're reading along in the Bible, see it's broken up into this four stanzas, each six verses each, 24 verses long. The first three stanzas kind of take a different aspect of God's character, and really in this sense is how God is present with us, and and David meditates on that aspect. So for example, in the first stanza, verses 1 through 6, David is talking about how God's knowledge surrounds us. God's knowledge surrounds us. So verses 2 and 3 speak of how completely God knows us, and David uses polarities as a poetically, to poetically drive home just how comprehensive God's knowledge of us is. So in verse 2, he says, You know when I sit and when I rise. Uh, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Now, when he says afar, he's not speaking of geographic distance there. He's talking about distance and time, meaning that he knows our thoughts well before we actually had our thoughts. Kind of a wild idea. Verse 3, he says, You discern my going out and my... And my lying down, meaning like, you know what I do every day, every aspect of each day, when I rise, when I go to sleep, and then he ends it with this, you are familiar with all my ways. And then in verse four, he speaks of how God knows us better than we even know ourselves. He says, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Like before we even know what we're going to say, God knows 
what we're going to say. Think, okay, how can that be? Well, it goes back to what Justin was talking about last week, and God's timelessness, that his transcendence, that God, since he is timeless, is out, you know, outside of time, and so he sees past, present, and future simultaneously. And so what that means, friends, and then, you know, if you can wrap your mind around that, kind of gives me a headache thinking about it, but what that, what that means is that he knows you way better than you know yourself. He knows you fully. We only know sliver about ourselves. Like we know this moment right here, and we have vague memories of other moments. <laughs> but God knows us fully. He knows everything about us. He knows the words that we're going to say before we even say them. We're surrounded, David is saying here. Man, we're surrounded by God's knowledge, his omniscience. And then he moves on. Second stanza, verses 7 through 13. And, and, he, and here he's talking about how we're surrounded by God's presence. So verse 7, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And the Hebrew word that's translated presence here is actually the word for face. It's the Hebrew word uh, panim. And so he's saying everywhere he goes, God's face is there. And the reason I want to point that out is because that speaks to the nature of God's omnipresence. Like God doesn't fill all space with like a, how a gas fills space. Like if I had brought in a, a canister of gas and I emptied it here, uh, y'all would be freaking out. Like, is that a safe? But, but it, you know, it'd fill this room, but it'd fill this room by basically, if I understand science at all, uh, by the molecules extending. And so it's like there'd be some gas over there and some gas over there and some gas over there. But uh, all of the gas is not in every single spot. But here, what this is saying is that uh, God fills all space not by being extended to where, like, you know, his, his left big toe is somewhere in South America and his face is somewhere in Asia, like that kind of thing, right? No, it, it's all of God is everywhere. So that David could say what he does as he continues to go on. He says, if I go up to heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. Highest I go, lowest I go, there you, there you are. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, speaking of, you know, the utter east where the sun rises, or if I settle on the far side of the sea, speaking of the utter west, for David's riding from Israel into the west of him, some Mediterranean sea, he says, even then you are there. Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. He's talking about God's omnipresence, that God... His presence surrounds us. His face is everywhere at every point of time in every geographic place. So first, you got his knowledge surrounds us, then his presence surrounds us, and then in the third stanza, verses 13 through 18, David describes how we're also surrounded by God's power, his omnipotence. Verse 13, he says, For you created my inmost being, which is speaking of God creating his soul, and then he says, you knit me together in my mother's womb, which speaks of God creating his body. And then if you keep reading, you go down to verse 16. He says this, your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now, don't miss this. This, this means that not only has God created us, but he has ordained us and so sustains us and upholds us. That he holds you together every second. That he's saying, God ordains your history. 
that at one point of time of your life, at the very beginning, there's conception. In my mother's womb, you knit me together. And then at the very end of your life, he is also there that each day is ordained. Every single day, guys, that you're here on earth is purposed. That's what this is saying. This means that you, no matter what your parents might have told you, are not an accident. <laughs> Nor is this day an accident. That, that every single day is ordained by God and your life is ordained and upheld and you were created by God. That God's power surrounds you from the very beginning of your existence the last day here on earth and really going on and on and on forever, you are upheld by God, surrounded by him, his omnipotence. All right, so David is meditating on the greatness of God here. And you see that? And like, it's just, this is mind-blowing stuff. It's just God is better and more incredible, greater than what we can possibly wrap our minds around. He's, he's, in, like, he's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere. Now, what I want to try to do real quick here, a couple minutes, is to do a little stunt preaching. And what I call stunt preaching is when I, I take a deep dive into a controversial subject, and then I try to come back up of it real quick without uh, derailing the entire message. <laughs> so wish me luck, all right? But I want to point out that there are some really big ethical implications of, what, of God's character that David's speaking of here. And one of the main things is what, uh, how uh, this tells us that God creates life, upholds life, sustains life, and all that stuff. That this, this has to do with, man, we need to cherish life. And that, uh, there's ethical implications here in regards to like murder and suicide. You see, like when taking life in our own hands... Is, is to take the place of God, and that's not right. And the hot topic, of course, issues in our day here that this intersects is, is how it intersects with abortion and active euthanasia. And what, what I want us to, to see here is that, oh, these, are the re these verses are key verses that explain why Jews and Christians throughout centuries have, uh, who understand this doctrine and believe it, seek to live in light of it. It's, it's why uh, believers who do that ch cherish life. Because they see that uh, to take life is to step into the place of God. And that because God is the one who knits us together in the mother's womb, and since God is the one who ordains all of our days to the very end, that we would say, uh, you know, abortion and active youth in Asia would go against under this understanding of who God is and what God does. So, uh, you know, this is, I know, a very hot topic. And I just want to be clear, I'm not trying to make a political statement here though it feels like I'm making a political statement. But what I want to point out to you is that what this, was, this was written way before the U.S. culture wars, okay? In fact, this was written way before the founding of the United States of America, right? And so I'm not trying to first make a political statement. I'm just trying to help us see this is a part of the implication of who God is and what he does, that we would see to, to, to take life in our own hands is to step into the place of God. 
And that would be wrong. Now, I understand that when it comes to how you vote, uh, that is influenced by so many different topics, okay? I get that. I also understand that there is good debate around what really reduces the rate of abortions in our country today. I get that as well. So I, and I'm not trying to step into any of those topics. What I do want to just point out to you here, because of what God's Word says, is that there are implications of this for how we would say, man, we're going to, as Christ followers, cherish life because of who God is. That he's the one who creates it. He's the one who ordains it. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one who upholds it. And therefore, we leave that in his hands. And where life is very fragile at the beginning of life and when you're sick or old at the end of life, and we're tempted to try to take it into our own hands when it can feel really inconvenient in times. We would say, no, I'm not going to do that. That's up to God. Okay. Having said that, I want you to know, if you're here today and you've had an abortion, it's really important that you know that we love you. And it's even more important for you to know that in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. And that because of what Christ has done on your behalf and on my behalf, that no matter what I've done and no matter what I do, God's grace is sufficient to cover my sin and cover your sin because of what Christ accomplished on the cross. And so we want you to God loves you and accepts you in his son, and we do too, okay? So I, I'm not saying these things to guilt you or shame you. I'm just pointing them out because that's a part of the implication of this biblical truth. And I want to point us to, like, this is why we would want to cherish life, uh, all life from the beginning to the very end, okay? Now, last thing I want to add here, because uh, this is one of, you know, my uh, go-to subjects is... Uh, this is another reason, guys, why we should really consider and prayerfully think about being adoptive parents. And so uh, to be pro-life is not just to be anti-abortion. It's to say, no, I cherish all life because we're fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Therefore, every person matters. And so we want to make space for people to come into our homes to be part of our families. And I would just continue to encourage you to consider that prayerfully consider that as a church. I'm thankful that right now I know of 20 people in our church that are currently praying and taking some of them, even active steps, to become adoptive parents. I'd love to see that happen more and more. Okay. Thanks for not throwing anything at me. I'm pulling out of this, and we're going to go back to the main thrust of this message, and we'll see if you can follow along from here. All right. So, Point one, God's presence is an inescapable reality that impacts every aspect of life. Now, having heard that, it's also true that God's presence can become a disconcerting reality for us, a disconcerting reality. Because you see, David is not just a theologian giving us facts about God in this psalm, is he? That he's also a poet. And so he tells us how his heart responds to these facts. And what we see here is that initially his attitude to this inescapable God who is everywhere and who knows everything and is in control of all things is, is that he is at least initially not positive towards this God. 
That instead, these truths are, like I said, very disconcerting for him. They're troubling for him. So, for example, that's why he says in verse 6, Hey, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Now, that in English kind of looks like a positive statement, right? But in the Hebrew, what he's saying is, man, such knowledge about God is just too overwhelming for me. It's too much for me. I can't handle it. My circuits are, you know, blowing here. Like, I just, I can't wrap my mind around you, God. And that statement comes right off the heels of what he said in verse 5 when he said, you hem me in behind and before. And the Hebrew word that we translate here, hem, really can mean you, 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 you confine me. That you enclose me, that you even crush me. This knowledge about you, that you know everything, that you are in complete power and that you're everywhere. It it feels, David is saying, it feels crushing to me. It feels, you feel like you're, I'm suffocating under you, God. You hem me in behind and before. Now, that's not actually how God relates to us. But as David is meditating on this aspect of God, that's how he's feeling at this time. He's saying, it feels like you're hemming me in. It feels like you're suffocating me, God. Which leads him to say what he does in verse 7 when he says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And that, guys, that second question he asks, where can I flee from your presence? That is David really saying, like, I got to get out from under you, God. I got to get away from you. How can I get away? That this two words, he says, flee from his presence. Those are, if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, the book of Jonah in the Bible, those are the same two words that Jonah says in Jonah chapter 1, when it, or used to describe Jonah in Jonah chapter 1, when God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, and Jonah does not want to go to Nineveh. He goes to Tarsus instead. He heads the complete opposite direction. We're told that Jonah sought to flee from the presence of God. And here David is saying, this is what I want to do. I want to flee from the presence of God. I have to get away from you. God, you're too much for me. So he could not stand knowing that God is completely all-powerful, all-present, all-knowing. And guys, my guess is that as you grasp the inescapability of God's presence, like there's a part of you that feels the same way. Like, God, this is, you're too much for me. Like all of us, me, you, all, all of us, every person wants some, to feel like you're in control. And wants the, the, the thing that you can live any way you want to live, that what you feel is right is right for you, it's wrong, it's wrong. And like you, you get to call the shots. We get to be the ones in control. We've got freedom. And we all have aspects of us that we want to believe that we can hide from everybody else, Right? And so to be fully exposed and to feel like we're not in control of every aspect of our life, we don't like that. There's something here that pushes against that. And we hear like, this is who God is. We think, okay, I'm not, I'm, like that's disconcerting for me. That's troubling. That's unsettling for me. I got to find a way to get out from under this God. I feel hemmed in. I feel suffocated. This is how David responded. Guys, it's how we respond as well. But here's what's interesting. You keep reading. You start reading from verse 5. You go read through verse 10. You see that something begins to happen here. Something is changing within David. That He goes from being really upset, feeling hemmed in and wanting to get away from God, to beginning to recognize the beauty of God's omnipresence. 
You see, after asking how to get away from God in verse 7, there is a series of, okay, if I go up there, you're there. Go down there, you're there. If I go over here, go over here. Right, you're, you're there. But then he ends it with, you know, by acknowledging the comfort found in the truth that God is everywhere. When he says this, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Do you see the change in tone there? I have to get out from under you, God. If you're everywhere, but if you go, if you're everywhere I go, then you know what? Your hand will guide me so I won't get lost. And your right hand will hold me fast so that when my feet slip, you've got me. When I feel unsteady, you've got me. That song, Hold On, I feel unsteady. I was playing on the, on the way to uh, church this morning. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's uh, Psalm 139. Um, but here, here's, here's what David is wrestling with, and I think really, in a nutshell, explains the human condition. We want to feel like we can live any way we want to live. And yet, at the same time, we don't want the hopelessness that comes when things get bad, when things get hard, to feel like we're all alone, that we're lost, or that we're just adrift in life. That we want the freedom to live however we want, but we like to know that there's a net below us that will catch us if we fall. And we have these mixed emotions. So we can't live with God and we can't live without him. Speak of another song you too was playing yesterday. With or without you. Can't live with or without you. That's, that's the human condition when it comes to God. And David is conflicted here because of how he wants to respond with freedom, but who God is and his greatness. But the psalm goes on and eventually breaks through. David actually uh, eventually breaks through the sense of being conflicted over God's inescapable presence to seeing the presence of God as an absolutely joyful reality. That God's presence is a joyful reality. We start seeing this in verses 11 and 12 when he says this, Surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. It's helpful to know that darkness, as it's used throughout the Psalms, always is speaking of a time of, of, of pain or near death or incredible danger or suffering. That darkness are times of hardship. That we're plunged into the darkness and you feel like you're lost. You feel like you're lost unless there's a God that you can't get rid of, right? That's always there and always present and who has got you by the hand, as we just sang, oh no, you will never let go. That instead of a God like that being a threat, he becomes a wonderful comfort, does he not? Because God can't lose me in the darkness, for to God, darkness is as light. Therefore, I am safe, because he has me by the hand, for with him even my darkness will turn to light. Like, do you see David here beginning to recognize the comfort and joy that is found in God's presence? Then if you go down to verse 17, he says, hey, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. 
How vast the sum of them. And the word precious here is used the way that we use precious often connected to precious stones, diamonds, you know, or you know, any kind of jewelry. And he's saying, now, God, when I think about how you know me completely and that you, how, you know, how vast the sum of your thoughts are for me, I find that to be a rich truth, a joy-bringing truth. And then in verse 18, he kind of sums up. He's got, remember, these three stanzas where he's meditating on God's incredible greatness, his character. And verse 18 is the last verse in those three stanzas. So it's kind of the climax. He's building to this. He's getting more and more overjoyed about who God is and his greatness. And he ends with this statement. He says, even when I awake, I am still with you. And what's interesting is that commentators say like, that, that feels like an odd way for him to kind of like, bring this to a climax because earlier in like verse 3, he had already spoke about how God knows him even when, like when, he, when he awakes or when he rises, God knows. And so it's like it, in a sense, it feels like he's repeating something he said already and it's kind of a weird way to bring it to a climax. But then commentators point out that's only true if what he's speaking of here is waking from sleep. But that many people point to the fact that there's another psalm that David wrote, Psalm 17, when he speaks of waking from a different thing. In Psalm 17, he says this. Um, I, and I in righteousness will see your face when I awake from death. I'll be satisfied by seeing your form. And I think, guys, I think that's what David is building up to here where he's saying, okay, this idea of being threatened by the presence of a God who fully knows me, who knows everything about me, is everywhere I go and is sustaining my life from beginning to the very end, like that idea of being threatened by that God, like I don't feel threatened by that God anymore in light of darkness because I know he's got me. And especially in light of death. For even when I die, he will still be with me. Like, what a statement of God's omnipresence and his omnipotence. Not even death will separate me from God. That he's got me by the hand. He's holding me fast so that in my resurrected body, after I die, I wake up, and where, where am I? I am still with my great God. He say, now, now there's joy. Now there's incredible comfort found in who God is and his greatness. All of that leads him to end the psalm in this really beautiful way. No, all of that leads him to end the psalm in a way that sounds really off-putting to our ears, right? Like, if you, if you remember when I read through it the first time, he says, okay, like, God, your thoughts are so precious to me. How vast the sum of them. When, when I awake, I'm still with you. Now, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. You know, later he says, I hate the people who hate you, Lord. You think, okay, what's that about? Why is he ending it that way, right? And so let me tell you why he says this, and then I want to point you to an incredibly ironic and unbelievable beautiful truth. So first, why he says this. Why does he end the psalm in this way? Well, the reason why is because as he's been meditating on God's greatness, he, he's, been, he's been realizing, man, God is worthy of my worship. And so he's been moved by who God is, 
to declare his loyalty to God. And that's what he's doing here. He's declaring his loyalty to God. He's saying, you know, I will not side with those who oppose you and misuse your name, God. In fact, I will hate those who say they hate you because I'm all for you, God, in light of how awesome you are. In light of your greatness and the comfort and the joy that I find in you, God, I'm clinging to you. I'm loyal to you. You hold my hand. Now I'm saying I hold your hand. I'm with you. I'm loyal to you. That's why he says this. He says this, moved by God's greatness. But here's the ironic and beautiful truth that really brings this entire psalm into perspective. Because what, in light of Jesus, what do we know about how God treats his enemies? What God actually does to his enemies? See, Romans 5.10 says this, that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. See, while we were God's enemies, what did God do for us? God the Son died for us that we would be reconciled to God. Here, David is saying, I have nothing but hatred for your enemies. But in Romans 5, 8, we're told that God demonstrated his love for his enemies in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. David says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. But instead, in Jesus, God actually did the opposite, didn't he? That Jesus, God the Son, voluntarily said, I will be slain on behalf of the wicked. Guys, how amazing is our God? See, what this means, friends, is that actually declaring loyalty to God doesn't look like saying, I'm going to hate those who hate you, God. Loyalty to God is saying, I'm going to sacrificially love and serve those who hate you, God, because that's what you did, God, for me when I was your enemy. You loved and sacrificially served me. Now I will go with you to love and sacrificially serve those who hate you. That's true loyalty to God because that's what God did for all of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Because that is unbelievable. As that, that is the gospel. Guys, what that tells us, that God is not only greater than we can comprehend, but he's also better than what we can comprehend. That he is so good to us that while we were his enemies, he would die for us. That God is not just great, but that he is good. And that because he's good, his greatness, his knowledge of us, and his power and his presence with us do not need to cause us to want to flee from him. How do I get away from you, Lord? But instead to run to him because in light of his goodness, we know that this is all means that he's for us. For us to a degree that we cannot comprehend just like we cannot fully comprehend his greatness. And that, guys, that's why David is able to end this psalm the way that he does in verses 23 and 24 when he says, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. You dare not invite this God in, this great, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God in to search your heart 
if you fear that when he sees what's there, he will reject you and condemn you. But in light of the gospel, when you believe, when you trust that Jesus Christ loved you so much that while you were his enemies, he died for you. So that you would be forgiven and given his righteousness. Then you can say what David says here. Come on in, God. Search my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. Know my anxious thoughts. See, I don't fear your condemnation. I don't fear your rejection. But I am moved by your greatness and goodness to want to be loyal to you. And again, loyalty looks like sacrificially serving with God your enemies. It also looks like pursuing holiness. I don't want there to be offensive ways in me. I don't want to have these anxious thoughts. Know me, God. Help me live and lie to you. I want to be loyal to you. And help me trust you, God, when I go through the dark times. That I would trust that you've got me, that your hand is guiding me, your right hand is holding me fast. I want to trust you. I want to honor you. I want to worship you in light of your greatness, in light of your goodness. I want to be loyal to you. Friends, as we close this morning, let me just ask you, do you know this God? Do you know this God? Present everywhere, all-powerful, all-knowing, and so good that he died for you while you were still a sinner so that you could be adopted into his family. If you are not moved to live loyal lives to him, to honor him and worship him, not just on a Sunday morning, but all the time throughout your whole week, your whole life, if you are not moved to worship him and honor him, to serve others like he serves others, to seek holiness and to trust him, then I've got good news for you. Here's the good news. You have barely begun to scrape the surface about how great and good our God is. If you're not moved to be loyal to him, then you have very limited understanding of who he is and what he's done for you. And the reason that's good news is because that means that God is incredibly better than you realize. He's so much greater, and he's so, he's so good that you don't even realize that if you did, you would be moved to be loyal to him. So guys, here's the application for you. Here's my challenge, my invitation to you this week. It's to get time with him, to open up your Bibles, to, to spend 15 minutes each day, and just read. Read the Psalms. Let them declare who God is to you, that you would see it and believe it. You'd be reminded of how incredible he is, that you would find comfort in him and joy in him and then be moved to be loyal, to worship and honor him. Would you start with just getting to know him, meditating on him like David does here? That's my challenge for you this week. He is so good. He is so great. He is so much better than any of us comprehend. We're going to end this morning by giving us a chance to begin 
to meditate on him by taking communion. And if uh, you have placed your faith in Christ alone, forgiveness of your sins, then the communion table is open to you if you're a follower of Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church, partner of this church to take communion. If you've never placed your faith in Christ, then I would encourage you to even use this time to talk with God. Tell him, perhaps even right now, you're ready to say, God, I believe that you have reconciled me through, through Christ. I believe that you have died in my place that I could know you. You could tell him that, and right now, through faith in him, you are saved and forgiven, and you know that you'll be with him forever, that he, his hand will guide you, his right hand will hold you fast no matter what. But for the rest of us that have already believed that, let's meditate on who he is when we take communion. For at the communion table, we remember God's greatness and his goodness in a tangible way. For when we take the bread, friends, when we take the bread, we are remembering that God is not like what David feared when he felt like God hemmed him in, like God would crush him, confining him. And that God is not that way because God did not choose to crush us, but God the Son was willingly crushed on our behalf on the cross when his body was broken. And when we take the cup, we remember that God did not slay his enemies, but instead God the Son was willingly slain on our behalf, having his blood spilled through which forgiveness is found. And in this, God defeated sin and he defeated death so that one day when we die, we will also awake and still be with him. As how great is our God. How good is our God. Let me pray and you come and take the bread and the cup and meditate on him. Heavenly Father, you are better than we realize. You're so much greater. You're so much more gracious, so much more loving. You're, you're so good. God, grow us in our understanding of you. Drive us to want to know you more, that we would hunger to know you. God, even now as we take communion, would you just drive home the truth of your goodness and your greatness, that we would find comfort and joy in you and be moved to live worshipful, God-honoring, loyal lives to you for your good and the, for your glory and the good of so many. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.